Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And the decaf was like going, <laughs> you know, and people were like, who's drinking all the decaf? And it was like, we're all drinking all the decaf. This week, we're going to try and cover quite a lot because there is a lot going on. I get withdrawal headaches, so I would notice because I like, it's like chemical, right? It would be yeah. like bad. We had the results of the Northern Ireland Assembly elections at the weekend. Next week, the Dutch people go to the polls in an election that may do a lot to shape the future of Europe. We've got the ongoing incredible drama of the French presidential election and hovering in the background, as always, Mr. Trump. And we'll come on to him at the end. And that's not to mention the fact that today, today being Wednesday when we record this, is Budget Day in the UK. And the government lost a couple of votes on Brexit in the House of Lords. And we'll come to that next week. I'm joined this week by Chris Bickerton, Maha, Aaron. First of all, we're going to be talking to Barry Colfer. Uh, I had some muesli and now the follow-up is this coffee here. So hopefully that sounds okay, does it? Yeah. Great. What, like what as breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> Who's talked to us in the past about politics on both sides of the Irish border. <laughs> Audio five. <laughs> <laughs> as a breakfast. Muesli, coffee and a pack of smokes. <laughs> I should let you know, it's raining here in Cambridge. You may hear a certain amount of pitter-patter on my office window. It will stop. The results of the election on one reading were not absolutely extraordinary in that the parties finished in the order that they have tended to do in recent elections. The DUP came first, Sinn Féin came second, the SDLP came third. I'm looking at Barry to confirm this. He nods. But the big story is that Sinn Féin came very close to becoming the largest party, both in terms of votes. I think it was about 1,000 between 1200, them. Yeah. 1,200. And seats, one seat. So how, just how significant is it that Sinn Féin are on the cusp of becoming the biggest single party in the Northern Ireland Assembly? Well, it is, needless to say, very significant. And Gerry Adams has described the era of unionist dominance and stormant as after coming to an end. The order of the parties where it was almost right what you said. DUP came first. Sinn Féin o- almost right. I, was right. I wasn't exactly right. <laughs> the SDLP slipped into third because it was a really bad day for the US unionists as well. The, the second unionist party in... Uh, in the north, lost six seats and came in in fourth. Right. So the assembly went from 108 seats to 90 seats. So there was an attempt made to try to reduce the cost of politics. This is its own kind of Northern Ireland populism. But uh, the most significant thing, I think, looking at it is that the UP has lost its right to undertake petitions of concern, which is a controversial veto mechanism. And it opens its way to things like marriage equality or gay marriage in the north. Now, the DUP have lost the ability... To veto that. To veto that, yeah. So even if there, there's the 28 DUP seats without getting into too much detail, and one TUV, the traditional unionist voice seat, even together they don't actually have the the magic number, the 30, to try and block controversial matters of social policy. And we're going to see over the next few weeks whether it's possible to put together some kind of mechanism to govern, um, and that's not at all clear. But you said there was a little bit of populism in this. Mm. Um we're going to talk in a minute about wider currents in European politics. Does it make sense to see the rise of Sinn Féin in the north as part of a story about the collapse of the centre and the growth of populist parties? Are they are they a populist party in the north? They really are a, an incredibly interesting political organisation, not least because they are elected in three different jurisdictions. Obviously, the Republic of Ireland, the Northern Ireland Assembly and Westminster. But what really stands out is... The fact that I would say in the Republic of Ireland, where they've surged at 23% in polls, 23 seats, they certainly act, walk and talk like something akin to a populist party. 
But in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections, things are still different. And 80% of votes cast are still for these sectarian parties, for either the Unionist camp or the uh, Republican camp. It was a good day as well last week for the, the parties in the middle, the Alliance Party and the, the Green Party, etc. So it's a, a long wind away to say there's certainly something populist happening with Sinn Féin but not so much in the North. I think something different is happening there. And is that because in the North, despite the fact that this clearly was a very, very significant election, is it that, as you say, there is not that much room for significant shifts in vote share? I mean, is, is this sort of movement within pretty, still pretty constrained limits? Oh, indeed. There's, a, there's an upper limit and there's a lower limit for all of the main parties. What has been spoken about since the election last Thursday is Sinn Féin have probably reached the high point of, of what they could do. If the election was rerun even tomorrow, the expectation that Sinn Féin could do so well with respect to the UP, there's been kind of doubt cast on that, that it's, I think it's the high watermark for Sinn Féin. Right, but then people have been saying that a lot about all sorts of parties and movements across Europe and in the United States, that we've reached peak Trump or whatever. And then it turns out, no, <laughs> there is another whole step yeah. up they could go. I mean, are you saying that it is not possible for Sinn Féin to become the single largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly? Because it's so close. I mean, 1,200 votes, one seat. Hey, look, I mean, I, I've been listening to the podcast like everybody else, and I'm very loath to make any bold claims about things that can or cannot happen. But I still say, and I do say I'm cautioning myself given what has happened, Northern Ireland is just different. And votes still tend to collapse around these kind of sectarian divide with like a wedge of cross-community parties in the middle. That there's still a really deep attachment to one's community and one's kind of political representatives. The DUP fell on their own sword a couple of times over the course of the past few weeks. There was this remark about feeding the crocodile where they said it was with, with respect to the Irish Language Act, which the DUP have been implacably opposed to. And they said that if you feed the crocodile with reference to Sinn Féin, they're just going to keep coming back, which really inflamed even the soft Sinn Féin vote. So votes that may have gone to the, the SCLP, the old party of John Hume, or towards the alliance, there was a rush back towards Sinn Féin in the past couple of weeks. I really think, A, given the unique political architecture and kind of community divides in the north, and B, given the abject performance of the DUP in the run-up to the election, I would still say with not quite my bottom dollar, but something close to it, that this is the high watermark for Sinn Féin in the North. What does this imply for politics in the South? Because, I mean, there's a wider context here. There's Brexit, but there's also politics in the South is pretty unstable at the moment. We have a government that's on the way out. Can you very briefly give us a sense of where this fits into broader both Republic of Ireland and UK politics? What what might be the most dramatic implications of this? For vote? sure, yeah, as brief as I can. The two stories from the election was what we've just covered, the uh, really bad day for unionism. The second big story, and this this is the story of the election for me looking forward, and it's the fact that over the past 100 years, there's been voices calling for a united Ireland and for a border poll. But never until now, certainly in my life, have they ever been taken as seriously as they are now. So this is partly given the fact that if we look at the 23rd of June last, Northern Ireland voted 56-44 to remain. If you look at the votes that happened last Thursday, 70% of votes and 60 of the 90 seats, I should say, were held by parties that were in favour of Remain. So there is this situation where Brexit has kind of fed itself into this election. If you dovetail with what happened in the South last February, where we saw, much like what is happening with, with regard to mainstream parties across Europe, the two old parties, the two old foes, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, for the first time got less than 50% of the vote. This is partly explained by this surge forward of Sinn Féin. Now, Sinn Féin have the exact opposite problem of shy Tories, in that in the polls, they're nearly always overstated. They have always been overstated. 
So you have this situation where Sinn Féin are as strong as they've ever been in the North. Just yesterday, the uh, Secretary for Northern Ireland, James Brokenshire, was turned away from a, a meeting with Sinn Féin because he wouldn't commit to money for... Um, so they said it was waffle, 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 Exactly. Right? Michelle O'Neill accused the Secretary of, of bringing nothing but waffle, waffle to a meeting. This kind of thing isn't that unusual for the North, but it shows this kind of increased assertiveness that Sinn Féin has, both in the North and in the Republic. And you have even mainstream parties, including including the Taoiseach from, from Fianna Gael, who had never been seen as a Republican, speaking about the Article 50 negotiations, having to include some dimension, leaving the door open to the reunification of the island. So that's the obvious second big take-home from this election. And so I'm going to ask you a very unfair yes or no question. Will there be a border poll, do you think, before the next UK general election in 2020? I think very unlikely that it will be before 2020. But as I said, increasingly these voices that were seen as marginal are be taken seriously. So, so within, the, within the next decade or so, quite perhaps. So that's a series of predictions that we will come back to. We're now going to broaden this out by starting with the Dutch election, which is next Wednesday. So a week from when we're recording this, we've got Chris Bickerton here, Maha and Aaron. Chris... The Dutch election is being treated as part of this wider story about the collapse of the centre and the rise of populism. The focus obviously on Get Wilders, but more broadly, the, the main parties that have dominated Dutch politics, particularly the Social Democratic Party, is just in precipitous decline. So is it is the best way to think about the Dutch election as part of a wider story about what's happening in Europe? Or does it have its own very distinctive characteristics that we should focus on first? It's obviously a bit of both, I think. That was a bit of both question, I think. When when people talk about Dutch politics, they often focus on its electoral system, which is interesting, very different from the British system. It's intensely proportional. It's sort of the most proportional system, is it, in it Europe? It possibly is. There's one constituency, essentially, for the whole country, and it probably requires to get a seat at something like 0.67% of the vote, something like that. So a very, very low threshold. Now... It's interesting. It means that you have loads of parties, some slightly obscure parties. People make jokes about the party for animals. That's what we talk about when we talk about Dutch politics. Oh, that's what we used to talk about. That's what we used to talk about. It's quite interesting, but I think it doesn't tell us that much. I think what's more interesting are some of these broader, longer-term transformations in Dutch society. The interest in this election from the outside is probably because of this figure, Geert Wilders. But people, I think, maybe sometimes forget he's been around for a long time. His party is about 10 years old. He's been a a figure in Dutch politics for, uh, for a long time now. So he's nothing new. What's going to happen is probably what's happened in the past. I mean, he polls, you know, very high in the run-up to an election. It then tends to drop off, which is what we're seeing at the moment. He doesn't come into government. He likes to to have some sort of role from the outside. And so these are things which, again, are probably going to happen uh, as they have done before. But I think there is the interesting thing about the Dutch system, which is that it has some echoes with what we're seeing in other parts of Europe. And this goes to to the discussion just before about Northern Ireland. The Dutch system used to be the most organised and the most orderly of electoral systems and societies. It was a proportional system, but there was no movement across different parties. People were born into a certain community. They went to a particular sports club, a school. They read a certain newspaper. Their life was really shaped by what the Dutch called the pillar in which they lived in. Um, And this system of pillarisation, verzouling. Pillarisation versus polarisation. Since, I think, probably the the mid-60s onwards, there's been a slow but very steady collapse of this pillarised political life. So if it's been slow since the 60s, that's a long time, has it been fast or much faster in the last few years? Because there is a sense, as you describe it then, 
it almost makes me feel, well, why have people been saying for a while that this election might be very important? Because it sounds like, a bit like the Northern Irish election, there might be some movement, but it's within fairly narrow bands and it'll be another incremental step on the road towards the sort of erosion of the centre. But there is a feeling that this election might be more dramatic than that. Is that a mistake in your mind? Have we oversold it? No, I think I think there is a reason. It's not, however, going to be the earthquake, I don't think, which was seen in Dutch politics in the early 2000s. There was a figure which preceded the entry of Gert Wilders into politics. It was somebody called Pim Fortone, who was this flamboyant, gay, anti-establishment, politically incorrect figure. Anti-Islam. Yes. Uh, not to the extent that Wilders Not, not in the same way as Wilders attacks Islam. For Fortune, it was more about the ability to live freely as he chooses to live in a society that accepts the fact that he's gay. Uh, he would attack Islam from a moral perspective, from a libertarian perspective. Wilders says a bit more than just that. But Pim, Pim Fortune came from nowhere. And in the run-up to the elections in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, he was polling very, very high. And he was killed uh, in just a few days before the election. His list, if you like, his Pinfortune list, essentially took a huge number of votes away from the Dutch Labour Party and pushed the Dutch Labour Party into a position that it never had before. And that was the earthquake, I think. And since then, Dutch politics has never really been the same. And the Labour Party's never really recovered. But it responded, but it hasn't really ever recovered. And the, the one thing I suppose we'd say about this particular election is that there is a real question about whether it's going to be possible even to form a government. So the proportional system is becoming, if you like, very unwieldy because people suggest there's going to be at least four different parties who are going to have to be involved in forming a, a coalition. This block against Wilders will probably continue. There's a lot of reluctance to make a deal with him and to get him into government. It's not even sure that he would be interested. So you are relying on an ability to forge some sort of alternative coalition. It may even be possible that the main party at the moment, the VVD, the sort of Liberal Party, that hopes to win enough seats to be able to form another government, if it doesn't, then there might even be some coalition that doesn't include that. So that's I think what people are interested in now, has it become basically dysfunctional, given that society is so fragmented and so volatile? Chris makes an interesting point about whether Wilders even wants to be in the government, because thinking about the nature of his party, right, it, it has been an anti-establishment campaigning party for a long time. Um, this was kind of also the critique of, of the Republicans for a long time. They were they had been out of office so long until the uh, Newt Gingrich uh, revolution in the 1990s, right, that they'd kind of forgotten how to be a governing party and they just become a party that took strong positions, but they didn't actually have to think about implementation. So this can be very tricky for people who have been in that position for a long time. It can be seem like a very risky proposition actually now to be responsible for positions that you put forward as the Republicans are finding out about repealing and replacing Obamacare right now just an example. Or the five-star movement at the local level in Italy right we've talked about this before that you actually win an election as one of these insurgent movements and you've got a real problem. I, I think the interesting thing about Gerd Wilders is I mean I may I think this is right should probably be double-checked but I'm pretty sure I think he's the only member of his party I think the PVV the party for freedom has been constructed around himself and has never matured into a traditional party with some sort of national executive and with local sales. It just doesn't look like that. It's a vehicle for him as an individual. And I think as a person, as a politician, 
he's quite interesting in that way. It's not clear to me that he wants anything other than to have a voice, to argue what he thinks are important points uh, relevant to Dutch society, but actually to run the government as a conventional politician. It's not clear to me that that even interests him. So in some ways, the analogy there might be with UKIP. I mean, I know UKIP is a conventional party, or at least is trying to be, but it has found it almost impossible to get beyond the personality of Nigel Farage, whom for many people is UKIP. I mean, this sounds like a more extreme version of that. There is the difference, which is that Wilders has carved out something quite significant in Dutch political life. I mean, I think the best way of understanding him is that he emerged at a moment where the multicultural model in the Netherlands was beginning to really be questioned. You know, the Dutch model was a bit like Italy. After the war... The capitalists got business and the left got culture. And that was the way it was in the Netherlands. And the left became in the Netherlands the new left, uh, sort of in the 60s into the 70s. And Wilders is overwhelmingly a reaction against the relativism that he hates about the, the new left in Dutch political culture. And that's the space that he carved out for himself. And that exists as a very powerful and legitimate position in Dutch politics. He doesn't seem to want to translate that into becoming a conventional party that rules in a coalition, but the arguments he's making have a pretty stable presence in Dutch politics, more so arguably than maybe something like, like UKIP. One of the things that's interesting about him is because he's been around so long, even if he casts himself as an anti-establishment figure, I think it's hard to fit him into like a recent wave of very sudden upsurge in anti-establishment sentiment because it doesn't come out of nowhere. But I wonder what happens if his vote share grows because it's riding this wave of populist anti-establishment sentiment. People who are voting for him with the assumption that he's going to bring these policies into being, if he finds himself in a position where he could be in a senior position in government and walks away from it, does his vote base collapse? Like, will that be seen as a betrayal of his principles? Or is that sort of consistent enough with the way that he's conducted himself over this whole long career that even the sort of newer voters who are coming to him in a surge of anger and discontent would accept that choice? I think he would do reasonably well, I think, maintaining his position as a, as a critical outsider. I mean, it is true that the hostility to Wilders is enormous. I mean, he, people have tried to, to get at him through the courts. He's always managed to extricate himself from those legal challenges and saying it's the liberal establishment that's attacking him. And, um, he, and he leads this slightly strange life, right, where he's constantly being protected. He can't live in one place. He's, he's almost kind of fugitive in his own country. Well, so that's right. I don't well, that's know. how he portrays himself anyway. Yes, I mean, around the time of the murder of the, the filmmaker Theo van Gogh, um, that became, you know, dramatic. I don't know whether he still has that degree of protection, whether the security questions are as prominent as they were, but he has this very, you know, particular lifestyle. Something that we have to sort of recognise is that his position has become more generalised and more accepted. So the Euroscepticism that was new, I think, and came with Fortuna and then was taken over by Wilders, that's a standard position in Dutch politics now. There are some other small parties that people are starting to talk about, one that's run by this sort of young Dutch public intellectual Thierry Baudet, a kind of interesting figure. Uh, really takes himself very seriously. He runs this very small party that may get one seat, something like that. He's got a sort of an anti-European, anti-multicultural position that's not that different from Ilders. And there's a number of other parties that are beginning to do that kind of thing. So the PVV is not the only kid on the block holding that position. And that's become... So Dutch politics has become accustomed to having a pretty strong anti-immigrant, anti-Europe line as part of its politics. And it is continuing and adapting to that... And the question about what would happen if Wilders was in a position to be, say, foreign minister, you know, um, I think 
if there was a, a willingness to create a coalition with the PVV, he would absolutely be in a position to do something like that. It's not clear to me that he would want that necessarily. And I think there's enough sort of alternatives to forming a coalition to not have to, to go there. And that's where the Dutch political system does become a bit particular, because there's no real pressure to, to do a deal with the PVV. I mean, if, if we can't form a coalition after these elections, I think that question might come up in a slightly more... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Urgent form, though. Okay, let's quickly go back to France because we've talked a bit about it and it's been another amazing week. Maha, you said that the thing about Wilders is he didn't come from nowhere. Well, the French have an equivalent politician. I mean, Marine Le Pen is not some sudden insurgent. She's been, this is a, a long campaign and she took it on from her father. All the drama, you know, amazingly for an election which is about sort of populist insurgency, all the drama has been in the mainstream Conservative Party. Just a straight question here. Juppé presumably could have pushed Fillon out and taken on the mantle of being the candidate of the mainstream right. Why didn't he do it? I have my theory about this. Go on, go um, for it. Which is that... <laughs> it's always good when people start a sentence like that. <laughs> I think it's because there's a general recognition that if Juppé were for some reason, to manage to get into the second round and run off against Marine Le Pen, it's by no means clear that he would win. There would be a number of people who at the moment are supportive of François Fillon, who are on the right, very staunch supporters of Fillon, who would refuse to vote for Alain Juppé. They think of him as a centrist, liberal, very soft on all the things that they consider important. And if the alternative is Marine Le Pen, then they would go for it. And I think there's a recognition within the, 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 the mainstream right um, political tradition that Juppé is quite a risky uh, figure, in fact. And shared by Juppé himself, presumably, because he, he it was his choice wasn't it I mean he if he had said I'll do it he would have done it so I think Juppé may be thinking about slightly different things Juppé did lose a primary in quite a dramatic way he was the front runner people thought he would win he lost he's had to absorb and accept that um for him to then come in as this substitute figure it's something a bit sort of Humiliating. humiliating about it, let's be honest. So I think he thinks of himself as too important to just step in. And that's what it would look like. I mean, I see the logic of it, but I also sort of wonder if the runoff is Fia and Le Pen, what happens to the left vote? That if a, a mainstream conservative candidate is going to win a runoff like that, he has to carry some of the center left, at least. Um, and he's a much more difficult proposition for those voters than a Juppé would have been. That is right. I think had there not been this figure of, en- of Emmanuel Macron, who everyone now assumes is basically mm-hmm. going to become president unless he, you know, makes some sort of idiotic mistake or something bizarre emerges between now and the first round. If he hadn't have been there, then I think calculations would have been a bit different and there'd have been a much greater willingness to push Fillon to one side. Mm-hmm. The fact that Macron is there... Many people think as it's a kind of a safe sort of alternative to Marine Le Pen, very credible, very possible. He'll soak up loads of votes. He's polling at around 65% in the second round, give or take sort of 61, 65. 
that's you know that's um, that's what people expect to happen. Um, so I think that's been important as well. To throw in a little political science nerdism here, the uh, question of whether or not somebody who is a little bit further to the left but of the right would soak up some of the center-left vote depends on whether you buy this median voter theorem mm. uh, or whether you buy this other theory that a North Carolina political scientist, whose name I'm blanking on and recently passed away, uh, but uh, came up with, which was directional voting, which is actually that if you are, say, on the right, you would rather actually vote for somebody also on the right who's actually further away from your policy positions than somebody who's closer to you, but to the left, because this refers more to kind of, I'll say, tribal identity, right, rather than policy preferences. So it's very much an open question, actually, I think. This directional voting thing plays out in American politics. I'm not sure how well it travels to other countries, but that's a kind of a risky proposition to assume that you will soak up people of the left simply because your policy preferences might appear to be closer. For the Fillon, Juppé, Le Pen sort of... um issue, I think that's exactly what would happen. I think there would have been a move probably more towards Marine Le Pen had Juppé been put in in place of Fillon. I mean, Fillon has a solid base. I mean, he was able to organise this meeting at the at the Trocadero in Paris, just in front of the, the Tour Eiffel. And, you know, there's debates about how many people turned up, but this was clearly a, a, some show of force. He was able to come across as somebody who has a pretty solid following and doesn't have to stand down unless he you know unless there's really somebody who's willing to come in so that was a success I think for him and he'll probably come away in the first round I think with his base intact but he won't uh, he won't be able to get through to the second round I think it was the biggest turnout in French history but the biased media covered it from a funny angle so you couldn't tell actually (laughs) yeah the photo I saw there were seven people there but that was just the platform (laughs) and it was raining so if you're right and you know it is quite a thought Macron now is very, very likely to be the next president. There's been this feeling, and we've talked about it quite a lot, that we're sort of waiting for the the election. I mean, obviously, Trump's election was the game changer, but European elections are going to signal another dramatic shift. Well, Macron winning the French presidency would be a very dramatic event, but the other way from where people are looking for the dramatic win, you know, the win of the populist, the win of the anti-European... This would be a very, very strongly pro-European, fully committed to the EU project president of France, anti-Russian, as we understand it in the current context, which matters, young, dynamic, free from the constraints of the traditional parties. Just how big a deal could a Macron presidency be for changing the way Europe is heading? I think the one of the most significant things about Macron is that there is arguably nothing behind him and you you have i mean to be fair you have said this before that it's it's a person it's all show yeah well it, it may or may not be but at this stage it does seem to be a person with a some sort of nascent movement but the big story in french politics is this complete collapse and evacuation of the center ground of these traditional political parties with long-standing um, support bases you then have somebody like macron who emerges now his positions are as you said they could fill the vacuum in a very different way but there is a distinctive possibility that he would come in would try to cobble together some sort of support within the national assembly because he has no party so he'd have to get deputies from other parties to join him and he would then be very weak as a president and would really struggle to do 
much of what he said he would do, and then the backlash against him would be absolutely enormous. The sense of disenchantment with these people who think of him as some sort of messiah would be enormous. Following another weak president who came in full of promise and evaporated in a puff of smoke very quickly. Though the expectations around François Hollande were always very different. There's a a book which was published about his time as a president which had this story about him giving a speech and this shoe being thrown at him. And had that shoe reached the podium and been caught by the journalists, he would have never won that election. So this is a remarkable story. It was his big speech. It was January 2012, the speech that made him the future president where he attacked finance. And he describes himself as a supporter from the audience threw a shoe at the podium and it slid up and then just stopped in front of the podium. And none of the cameras caught it, but he saw it. And fascinatingly, that would be a literal example of sabotage. It would indeed. (laughs) Had it hit him, had it hit the podium, the only thing that people would have reported would have been that somebody threw a shoe at this presidential candidate. He was a fragile leader from the beginning. and He had very kind of tepid support from lots of places. Macron, so many hopes have been invested in him. And the sense of disillusionment, I think, would be pretty considerable. I mean, a couple of things. I think that Hollande also won that election in part because Sarkozy was in so much trouble at that time. Um, and in that sense, this is a little bit familiar in terms of that election, in terms of Hollande is, is, the, is so is historically unpopular, right? Um, and that is part of what's happening here. And one of the things that I think is interesting in the French elections that I have watched, um, the first round is often a little bit of a circus because there are so many candidates. Um, and then it's in the second round when you get to a runoff that you start to have space to dive into people's policy agendas much more and it's much easier to set up some kind of contrast. And I wonder if that's where the rubber meets the road for somebody like Macron because his actual policy agenda, in part because it is so liberal, so pro-European, he's endorsing a lot of the parts of the Hollande presidency that have gotten Hollande into so much trouble. And I wonder how vulnerable that makes him when it is just a contrast between him and a Marine Le Pen. And the one thing I was going to bring up, which is a little bit more meta approach than just looking simply at French politics, I wouldn't call Macron a populist, but one of the characteristics of, I think, the current wave of elections is people focusing a lot on individuals and kind of forgetting about the importance of political structure. Now, for populists, this is a double-edged sword in a way because they say, well, there is this existing elitist structure that we are rebelling against, but they overestimate the degree to which a forceful personality can undo that structure because they will be beholden to the people, right? And what we're seeing now is, as you've said, right, high expectations being put on individuals to do something about dissatisfaction and grievance. And you're setting yourself up for a letdown because you're forgetting about the importance of the structure that's already there, right? As Mark said, right, we make our own destinies, but not in circumstances of our choosing or something along those lines. I don't translate the original German precisely. And I think I know who you're talking about there in part. So let's come on to him. You you know me so well, David. Yeah, we're always talking about that person. Let's not talk about Trump in in the context of American politics, but let's finish by just thinking about what he might mean for European politics. Because there is, beyond these national elections, the question of whether Europe can hang together over the next few years. There there is the euro, which is still in crisis. And we haven't got Helen here, so we're just going to have to assume that we know what we're talking about on that. Um, But the European project is still in as much trouble as it's ever been. There's Brexit, which we'll come on to next week. Is there the possibility, particularly say if Macron wins, that Europe does see itself as 
standing against Trump and Trump's America, and that there is a, a coming together of European states or European peoples, partly in reaction to Trump's election, because it must at least be possible that people in Europe decide they don't want to go down that route, that you know, Trump got there first, and rather than this being the first of a wave of Le Pen and all the others, that Europe chooses to go the other way. I mean, it, it, politics is not, it doesn't always move everything in the same direction. It has, it has countercurrents. Yeah. Well, you're looking really sceptical. I'm, I'm trying to be... I'm very sceptical that... You are sceptical. Even if you <laughs> do get looking skeptical, uh, you are skeptical. people supportive of the EU project being elected, that Trump will be some sort of galvanizing force that will unite European states. There's a debate amongst international relations scholars about whether the European community, the European project, was a reaction to mainly the horrors of the Second World War, mainly to this unfortunate economic setup, right, where you had coal and steel divided between two major superpowers on the continent, which certainly was related to the war question, but then also how much of it was related to the need to form a united front against the Soviet Union, with the United States taking a lead and also encouraging, as well as Britain encouraging, a more united Europe, in part to avoid another major conflagration and to check communism. And looking just at the last aspect, uh, there's something about having a major land power right on your doorstep that tends to focus your attention like a laser beam. The United States, for as powerful as it is, is not seen nearly to the same degree as, as a threatening force as the Soviet Union, in no small part because it is separated from Europe by thousands of miles and is not going to be occupying European countries. There's certainly no indication that Trump or anybody else, for that matter, in American politics would be interested in a land invasion of Europe. But, so, but, but what if Trump was thought to not be defending Europe against Putin? So there is some arguments by people that I've cited before on this show that say when the United States seems to be uh, going its own way, right? When it seems to be acting in ways that don't take European preferences into account, this is when you especially see a tendency for more cooperation on European common foreign and security policy. The problem with this argument in terms of an, in extracting this logic and then inferring about what would happen with Trump is what Trump is doing is unprecedented. So you've seen marginal cooperation. Chris, I'd like to hear what you'd think about this. Fairly marginal cooperation as far as foreign policy and security politics are concerned amongst European states. And maybe that gets boosted a little bit when the United States seems like a less reliable ally. Uh, but I'm not sure that that translates into a linear trend, right, where you get even more of that if the United States really seems to be taking its ball and going home, you know, becoming economically nationalist and focused mainly on, say, ISIS in the Middle East and not really caring about what happens to, say, the Baltic states. I'm skeptical that you would get the same amount of unity I think the, it all depends, to be honest, on what happens in Germany. If Macron uh, is elected French president and has this sort of pro-European position, if somebody like Schulz becomes chancellor in Germany, who used to be president of the European Parliament, is a committed pro-European... And is the candidate of the mainstream Social Democratic that's Party. That's right, of the SPD. That's, that's quite a serious tandem. They may see eye to eye on a number of things. Possibly. So that I would have a lot of qualifications about that. If Merkel wins, Merkel's only interest ever in her long political career and her 12 years as chancellor has been to maintain her electoral base. She has, as far as I can tell, no principled beliefs whatsoever. 
And what Merkel would do without any question is a deal with Trump. She would find some way of accommodating the United States. The language that she uses is language of, you know, of caution and of distance, but she would find some way of creating some sort of workable relationship with the United States, including with its president. She wouldn't, I think, go as far as, as holding his hand, but she would nevertheless do some sort of deal. And there, I think, the idea that Europe would unite against Trump and sort of have this alternative path, I don't think Merkel would think in those terms and wouldn't even be interested. I don't know that that's necessarily true in terms of, I think that she, in the first couple of days after he was elected or inaugurated, came out and gave Trump, right, came out and gave a couple of addresses about Trump's policies on migration and sort of carving out the spaces in which, a, you know, a Merkel-led Germany would not work with him. So if you're thinking about if there's going to be some kind of a deal, and I think it's possible that if she's chancellor, there might be, you know, there would be carve-outs for German nationals of any ethnic origin traveling to the U.S. in a way in which I think she would play that much more intelligently than Theresa May had an opportunity, right, to advocate for British citizens of, say, Iraqi origin going to the States and didn't. Um, And I think Merkel would put those things up front. But I also think that where the rubber is going to meet the road in Trump's relationship with Europe is in terms of the degree to which Europeans feel like the U.S. has their back vis-a-vis Russia. Merkel is an interesting character in that sense because she's the European leader who has the strongest personal rapport with Putin. She speaks fluent Russian, he speaks fluent German. They speak to one another in a way in which almost no other you know, head of government in Europe is able to do. And so she could be the kind of bridge that is able to bring European powers to Trump if she's in power there. The, the one thing, and I know I'm focusing a lot on the security element, that's because that's the main tool in my toolbox, is even if there was perfect agreement amongst 28, soon to be 27 countries in the European Union, that Trump was a threat to European interests. And as long as he was president, the United States was going to be an unreliable ally. The idea of then trying to implement the steps needed to fill in for the gap that would normally be left by the United States in terms of NATO, in terms of intelligence gathering, right? This is a very complex process. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next year or so. Already, you've heard a lot of reports that European powers, as well as, frankly, the U.S. uh, intelligence community, is skeptical of sharing too much information with the Trump administration for fear that it'll wind up in Moscow or for fear that it'll be leaked to the press because they haven't shown an ability to maintain information security so far, right? And that's been a major component of the U.S.-European relationship, especially actually with, with the U.K. since 1946. Uh, the intelligence sharing agreements actually predate NATO. That's a challenging area to fill in. Of course, it's also going to be hard to gather evidence about exactly what states are doing because states hold their their intelligence cards pretty close to the vest. But we're talking about when you get to the nitty gritty details of coordinating these types of policies amongst a community this large, it's very unwieldy. So even with harmonious interests and agreement on the issue, right, the implementation of what comes next is going to be very hard. Next week, we're going to come back to the question of Brexit, and I'll be talking to Patience Wheatcroft, who's been right at the heart of some of the most contentious fights about remaining in the European Union. The British Podcast Awards are coming up. If you like voting, and if you listen to this podcast, maybe you do, you can vote by going to their website. Our website is talkingpoliticspodcast.com. We are on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. 
Yes. It's, I use it a lot. It's a very yeah, so Helen's is double down. You. Yours is rubber meets the road. Yeah. Yours was close to their vest. Which close is, to the vest. I thought it was to the chest. Well, you wear a vest on your chest. The Puritan, <laughs> the Puritan streak in me as an American uh, still runs, you know, mentioning the chest that's a little close to the yeah. bosom. And frankly, that's that, a little... That sounds like you're naked. That's a little you, risque, you're, yeah. You're wearing undergarments. Yeah. It is Waffle Wednesday. Oh, well, you're not going to pick on me because of that. It's Waffly Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, you really exactly. need to bring them to share next time. I, I'm. I, okay, so not kidding. Wednesday. I'll make some and bring them in. <laughs> or I could, br- I could bring in the Waffle Iron. My favourite word in the English language is Waffle Iron. In the whole English language. I hyphenated. In the whole English language. It's a clever lawyer trick. Do you think there are better words than Waffle Iron? <laughs> Scott's Twitter is amazing. Which it is amazing. Like, kind of, you know, that's an insult to Gibbons. <laughs> oh my god, this episode. So if we use that in the outtakes, then we'll have to put a little E next to this yeah. episode. No, it's explicit. Explicit can, material. Can, do we have like a can Colby parental just, like, and be like the bleep bleep? <laughs> bleep. Yeah, so far. Gibbon. <laughs> You see, caffeine plus alcohol. I haven't had a drink yet. <laughs> okay, we, we got to... Okay, let's go. First of all, we got to sober up, and then we got to get on with it. All right. Okay. Right? Yeah. I'm getting too giddy. No, I don't, I don't feel giddy now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>